Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. You know, the PGA Tour has been in the news a lot lately, not only for the events, obviously, that they conduct, but the challenges that they face and the existential threat that could come from the Saudi-based league. That remains to be seen. Greg Norman was on the show a little bit over a month ago, and we asked him the questions we felt like we needed to ask, and a lot of them had to do with where the money is coming from. Well, a lot of the ideas that the Saudi-based league has and would like to have come to life really were the impetus of the Premier Golf League. They're the ones a couple of years ago who had some Saudi investment who wanted to possibly get some of the top players in the world to participate in a team-formatted backed league. Well, they don't necessarily want to challenge the PGA Tour. They would like to partner with the PGA Tour. And Andy Gardner, who is a former finance lawyer on the corporate side, is the man who oversees the Premier Golf League. They are very well funded. They have the ear of a lot of the top players in the game. And two months ago, they sent an email detailing what they would like to present to the PGA Tour and who their conduit is to the PGA Tour. He's a top player in the game. Well, it's time to have that conversation with Andy Gardner about the Premier Golf League and how they would like to be a part of the elite level of men's professional golf. That conversation is now. with that, we welcome in Andy Gardner from the Premier, Premier Golf League. Andy, how are you? Very well indeed. Thank you for having me. Well, it's it's good to have you. You know, look, you're you're such a, a fan. And I think people, as they get to know more about, about you and, and the people that you're aligned with, you guys are golf fans. You're not just business people. You're a huge golf fan. Where, where does that yes. come from? Let me give me an idea of your background and your affinity for the game of golf. Okay. Um... It comes from two places. One, when I was seven or eight, there was a pitch and putt going up the hill, top of our road. And this is in, a, in Nottingham. Um, and I used to go and take myself off and just play the pitch and putt. Um, and I remember never being very good at it, but occasionally there were things that I thought, wow, um, and pestering just about any adult I could find. Um, to come and play with me. And I know that was a regular thing through my childhood. Um, and I spent most of my, I guess up until the age of 16, I only ever went on holiday to one place, which was in Ireland, which is where a large part of my family come from. Um, and a cousin of mine had another pitch and putt. So as soon as I was old enough, I would go out there. And my deal to stay the summer was cutting the greens and getting to play. Um, and I had, I, yeah, my only ever hole in one was, was on about 140 yarder coming back from the top of the field, looking out at the sea. And this was right on the coast, um, a small place called Curraclough, which is County Wexford. Uh, and that was it. And that's what I did for years. And you'd think I'd be better, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not. Um, but that's, that's where it came from. Uh, and I then 
had the ability to merge what was a passion in terms of playing with work um, because around about 2006, a business that I was involved in and part of um, had the opportunity to work with the European tour. And that took me from fandom, I guess, inside the commercial ropes. And that was just a joy. I mean, if you want a, a fanboy, <laughs> that was it. Because just meeting the guys at Wentworth, and then ultimately I was taken out to Augusta. I was, I was given uh, privileged access to Ryder Cup in Ireland, that sort of stuff. And that was, that was where the transition started to occur. And, you know, when you get on the inside of something that you've been on adoring from the outside for so long, it's quite special. Um, and, and, you know, that was, if you want to trace Premier Golf League all the way back, it's probably to around about 2006 and those, those experiences. You know, Andy, when you go back to pre-COVID, uh, you guys, you know, started to get some attention in the United States and you did a very thorough uh, discussion, interview conversation uh, with Chris Solomon uh, from No Laying Up, which was very detailed in, in yeah. what it was that, that you guys were proposing. And subsequently, when COVID hit, there was a combination of things that transpired. Obviously, um, you know, a lot of things shuttered. Uh, golf, like everything, kind of buckled, but, but golf really has been fortified at every level, participation levels, uh, equipment companies are having record sales. Uh, it's, it, you know, the PGA Tour is, is doing exceedingly well. Uh, but also with that came the, this idea of a Saudi-based league as well, and which is now uh, Greg Norman's undertaking. We had Greg on the show about a month ago. And you guys yeah. were quiet for a while. But two months ago, an email that was, that was sent uh, to Rory, with the distribution list and included members of the board of the PGA Tour uh, with great detail from the World Golf Group Limited, which is your group, uh, yep. was made public primarily by the Fire Pit Collection. And we're gonna, I want to go through all this. What I don't want to do is for people to feel like, wow, you're bogging us down with a, a lot of data, a lot of financials. Look, it's part of it, though. And, and so I want to start, though, from you guys stepping back and in doing what you've done over the last two years, what has the Premier Golf League been doing over the last 24 months? Okay, so you're right. COVID put a stop on a lot. Um, on the business side, you know, we were asked to get out a crystal ball and take a view on what COVID was going to do to revenue figures two, three years down the line, that sort of stuff. Um, because we'd already built an extraordinarily detailed financial model, a business plan. Um, I've got to say that was, it was an exercise we went through for a couple of months, but it was incredibly difficult because if you, if you take yourself back to March, April, 2020, um, a lot was unfolding. And I don't think, well, I'd certainly never lived through an equivalent period. Um, but that gave us, it gave us the opportunity to take a step back and really to strip down the engine, which we did because we've been working on a particular set of assumptions and just the time to step back, you know, quite frankly, where else could you go? Um, so it was useful in that sense. And it was the stepping back because everything had been quite, I guess it, it had been on a roll 
um, for six or eight months, meetings followed by meetings, and it was growing. But then naturally everyone's mind turned to much more meaningful stuff. Um, we took a step back and we then began a conversation with the European tour, um, which was commented on by Keith eventually. Uh, but that was probably a, a four month conversation. Now that's, ended abruptly when the alliance was announced between the PGA Tour and the European Tour. Um, but with that, which was sort of, I guess it was back end of November 20, we then had already started to think, well, there is a better way of doing this. Um, one is to recognize the value that's being created by the Premier League as a corporate entity, and then to work out where that value was best allocated. And our previous model had been to pay an awful lot of money to a handful of guys, a handful of the top golfers. Um, and what we'd listened to, but probably not taken on board eight months before was this desire to make sure that everybody benefited, nobody got left out. So was there a model that could be, that could deliver as, as fans, the, the optimum format, you know, the, the best it can be, um, that gave recognition to the value transition to the top players in the world, which is something, you know, you've seen the tour do with the changes in purse allocation, et cetera. But can you do all that whilst also making sure that this is something that makes the entire membership of the PGA Tour say, wow, you know, this, is, this is actually great. Thank you. Um, and that was the switch in our model which then started to become apparent probably middle of last year, which is when we um, came back out from, I guess, the period of, of you know, staying quiet, um, put up a website and wanted people to, to begin to understand what it was that we were hoping to achieve as fans and for fans, but also, you know, how do you get this done? Which was always prior to then a chicken and egg question. Because you'd have one, you know, you'd have broadcasters, you've had, you'd have sponsors, you'd have players, and which was going to move first? And that was a situation that I lived and breathed for probably four years. Um, and the idea of bringing everybody together, but all the way back from 2014, when I was looking through my emails the other day and found an email I sent to Rory back in October 2014, and it talked about setting up a joint venture prior to seeking collaboration with the PJ Tour. So people have asked me, how long has this been a notion? And I've always said, it's always been part of the plan. And it wasn't until I found that email, I thought, okay, well, now I can put a date to it. It's October, 2014. And some would say, taken an awful long time to learn <laughs> the lessons that we, we were being taught. Um, but you know, we've, we've reached a situation now where I think we do have a model, which um, I find extraordinarily compelling. I mean, logically it's very compelling. Because you know, the existing structures within golf, be they non-profit or companies limited by guarantee, they can't generate and crystallize significant equity value because of their structures. So if you bring along a new structure which allows you to generate you know, quite a considerable amount of value, we think in the region of $10 billion plus by 2030, and then you work out the allocation of that equity, which is and you do that on the fairest basis possible. Um, 
that's where we're at. It's, it's the recognition of the creation of the value and then how it's allocated. And it's the allocation which is set out in the letter that you referred to earlier. Andy, the, uh, and I want to read a few things from the letter as we go through this. Um, but one thing I want to make clear is that, that your intention is not to be a threat to the PGA Tour. The intent is to be a partner with the PGA Tour. And, and whether it be under the umbrella of the PGA Tour, however it would be constructed, if you look at the PGA Tour, they, they have a number of arms. Many of them are, are developmental leagues, whether it be the McKenzie Tour, whether it be the Corn Ferry Tour, uh, to, to some degree the World Golf Championship Series. Is that what you would like to do? Is that the aspiration for the Premier Golf League to be an arm of the PGA Tour? Yes. So I, I see, I mean, I, again, I you know, will try to avoid the, the technical side of this too much, but PGA Tour is two things to me. One of, one of them is the tour that we recognize as fans, and that is 43-odd tournaments a year. Um, and that is the tour. And that's, you know, the, the members came together back in 68. They decided to um, appoint a body to administer, to, to operate those events. And that is what you see week in, week out. You see the results of that hard work. Um, PJ Tour as a corporate entity, as a corporation, is... PJ Tour Inc., which is the company that sits at the top, and that's that's the 501c6. Now that is an umbrella for the operation of six tours, five tours, depending on you know whether China's going to come back. But over the course of the last 30, 40 years, what started off with the PJ Tour as a body of tournaments that we recognize, then you had added obviously what is now Corn Ferry Champions, etc., Latino America. And that is the framework. So PGA Tour Incorporated is the framework. And if you read its mission, it is to promote the interests of, of touring professionals. Um, and Premier Golf League is an addition to what sits, with, sits underneath that umbrella. It is still in the best interests of touring professionals. Probably, I would argue, um, by far and away the best interests. But yes, within within the existing structure of PJ Touring, P Premier Golf League can and should operate, is my view. Um, and that can be administration, it can be sanctioned, it can be whatever is deemed appropriate. Uh, but most importantly, this is a decision that ultimately I think will get made by the voting members of the PJ Tour, because nothing should happen of this significance without their consent. And where, you know, where we're focused at the moment is to make sure that ultimately those voting members have the ability, have the information at their disposal to make an informed decision. Because this, the reason for the change in the business model was the recognition that how, you know, how do you get this done? How do you solve the chicken and egg issue? Well, you go to the guys who can actually get this done and they are the voting members of the PGA Tour, simple as that. Um, so you know, that's, that's how we see it. And the person that you have gone to, this email that was that was sent out uh, back in the middle of February, February 14th is dated, it is to Roy McElroy, who is a member of, of the, the policy board of the PGA Tour, in addition to some of the other board members who are tour members, James Hahn, Charlie Hoffman, Kevin Kisner. Uh, and then you obviously have uh, the, the 
the other members who are um, part of the board, including Ed Hurley, who is a, a very accomplished lawyer, um, yep. who is somebody who's got the ears, certainly as do all of these people uh, of Jay Monahan. Is is Rory somebody who, it, based on the conversations you've had with him, who is a big believer in this concept? Well, I, I wouldn't like to put too many words in his mouth. Sure. Um, but what I what I can tell you is when I did the No Laying Up pod back yeah. in November, um, I woke up to an email from Rory, which I was very pleased to read because, first of all, he said he'd listened to the whole thing, which, given it was two and a half hours long, I'm eternally grateful to him for that. Um, and he said it was well put together. As it, was it was informative and something that he thought the wider golf community would find interesting, should listen to. Um, and he brought up a couple of points that he thought would be helpful. And one was, uh, he turned it second fiddle, as in the PGA Tour would not like to play second fiddle to Premier Golf League. Mm -hmm. And that's the point you were just sort of addressing with the umbrella. So that's why that exists in the letter. Um, the second point was valuation. Because you know, I'd, I'd said on the podcast, we think this is going to be worth $10 billion in 2030. Now, in actual fact, we think that number's low. We think it's probably closer to 13, but we're calling it 10 because it keeps the math simple. And on the basis of what's set out in the letter, that works out at about $20 million per voting member. If you assume there are 250 voting members, there are fewer. Now, Rory made the point in the email, and then we followed up with a call later that day, that this was not really the expertise of the tour or its executives. They didn't know how to go about valuing a business, uh, particularly one based off a business model, which is looking out seven years. And I, I said to Rory at the time, and we had a, a very good conversation later that day, um, covered a lot of ground. And I said, well, we can address the valuation issue by simply getting an independent valuation done. Yep. There are multiple parties out there who are capable of taking these numbers, working through with us, with all of the third parties we've been working with over the last three, four years, and getting to a number, but it's an independent valuation, which will then give the executive of the PGA Tour the confidence, the comfort they require. Um, now, what was key from that conversation to me, I don't know whether this is still true, um, but what, what stuck with me was, as part of the conversation, Rory basically said, I get it now. You know, having listened to me for two and a half hours, he said, okay, I get it. Um, I can see why this might be actually right for fans, right for the game of golf, and actually right for the members of the PGA Tour. Um, and I got to say, I was, you know, as, as conversations go, I was delighted to hear it. Um, then it was a, you know, how do we get this moving? Uh, and Rory said, well, I'll, you know, I'll try to encourage Jay to have a conversation with you um, and look to bring in the pack, etc. Now, what then transpired was you know, Rory went on No Laying Up in December yep. and made reference to what I'd said and said, you know, if you've got a guy who's saying there's a possibility of generating $5 billion worth of equity value for 250 members of the PGA Tour, then you listen to him because, yeah, you do the maths and that's $20 million a piece. Um, 
that's and that was a sort of they've got to listen to him and it didn't transpire but I'm used to that you know, we've been doing this some time and we've been trying to have this conversation for about three years um, but always believing that patience is is the key virtue if you believe in what it is you're proposing there's no need to you know take a hostile approach or or be in a rush because this is about communication and the ideal form of communication of our opportunity the message to the members is via the organization that that represents them um, now you know the letter carried a little more from conversations that we've been having you know there's not it's not just the equity value but it's we'll put our, put our money to a degree where our mouth is on the valuation. We'll back it up mm -hmm. with an advance payment of 460 million. Now, that works out at $2 million per voting member on the PGA Tour. It's not a lot of money in relative terms to anyone sat inside the top 10, 15, 20. We know that. But our view was it's a, it's a marker, as in, this is our opener. We will back up this valuation and we'll advance cash against it. And it probably in a way that is more meaningful for the guys who are currently sat between 100 and 210 yep. on the FedEx or you know, is within whatever ranking system you want to go with. Um, because that, funnily enough, I, I spent a number of years focusing my attention on the world's best players. And with the change in our approach, the constituency that is as important, if not more important, is actually those guys who are outside the top 50, who are currently between 100 and 250, because they all have the same voting power. Correct. Um, and they're the sorts of guys, you know, if, 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 you, if you said to me, and I was in that position, you know, would you take an opportunity to, to generate this amount of value? Um, it's certainly something I'd look at. I'm not going to answer on their behalf, but I'd have a really good look at it. And I'd try to understand it. Um, and based on that understanding, I'd make a decision because it is ultimately their decision, but it's, you know, it is, there's a board, as you said, you know, there's Ed, there's Mark, et cetera. Um, and they're the four player directors. And the ideal scenario is that we now move forward into a process. And this is where we're currently at is trying to, trying to agree the process because it hasn't, it hasn't quite come together yet. The, um, I, I want to repeat what you said. It's $460 million, uh, which all these members would be entitled to receive up front, uh, essentially vesting them uh, with the idea, and, and you were explaining to me, we had a phone conversation a couple of weeks ago about the independent valuation that you've had done by several United States investment houses uh, to give you, uh, in, in whether it be just whatever it was, it was, I think the low range was in the $13 billion range and was the high yeah, closer so, to almost about 20? Well, I, that's, no, that's probably too high. Um, in matter of time, yes. Yeah. But, you know, you're probably talking a couple of decades for that because you know, time value of money, et cetera. Sure. Um, and media rights and sports rights in particular is a market that I think you'll find just about everybody in the world. If you've got a high quality product, no one's talking about deflation in the value of sports rights in the next 10 or 20 years. Um, the valuation is based off 
you're right. We've been doing this for a number of years, as you know. Um, but when we set about building the financial model, we went to the experts in those fields, be it in tournament operation and power supply and F&B, setting up hospitality. You know, the, the, there's two parts to the model, of course. One is your revenue and one is your cost assumptions. And you know, we went through every type of revenue and we went to the third parties responsible for the generation of that revenue, you know, be they broadcasters, the leading sponsors, et cetera. And we built the model based upon extraordinarily robust assumptions based on actuals in the marketplace. And then having got the actuals, we knocked them down. So we thought, right, let's be conservative here. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's take 20% off those numbers so that when we go to the market, when we go to have this conversation, we know we're standing behind something which is incredibly strong. Then we went through exactly the same level of detail on the, on the cost side. So when you say, what else have we been doing? We've been doing that work nonstop for the last 12, 18 months. Mm -hmm. That rebuilding of the model caused us to go back and refresh every single assumption we'd made. Now, be that on ticketing, be it on um, what it's going to cost us to to do our own production, et cetera. We couldn't rely on numbers that were even 12 months out of date, particularly as COVID had occurred in the meantime. what you have is a the only real area for debate as far as we see it, because this is what we want to do. We want to sit down. We want to share the numbers, share the assumptions behind, explain exactly how every single number has been determined and introduce those third parties. So, for example, on the broadcast side, which is something that I know you'll be closest or close to. Mm-hmm. When we when we set out, yes, we went to see the broadcasters direct. And we had some very fruitful conversations, but then we went to the media buyers. Now, the media buyers are the guys who, those that we approached and got to know very well, they spend seven out of every $10 that is spent during live US sport. And so having that conversation was incredibly informative because we were then able to bring the broadcasters into the conversation. So you have in a room, you know, the product, which is Premier Golf League, the media buyer and the broadcaster. And when you've got those three parties together, there's nothing missing. Because, you know, we were working our, our broadcast assumptions off actual CPMs, you know, the ratings at the moment, you know, they've moved again. I say they wouldn't, they're probably not as healthy as the broadcasters would like to see over the last four or five months. But you know, that was the level of detail. So when we got to a point of saying, right, this is where, what our broadcast uh figures should be it was based upon having the guys who were buying those that the the media sign during live broadcast they know the value so there was was nothing that and that's the approach that we took now um what came out when fire pits um released the letter yeah was a comment was a comment uh thing from kevin kisner who's also on the policy board. Right. And the comment was along the lines of, well, we've had it in, we've had an independent valuer come in and, and they've said the numbers are not real or the numbers are not feasible or something of that nature. Um, and I thought, well, that's odd because it's very difficult to value a business without talking to the business. Um, and then I got a slight, a little bit more clarity on it because 
Um, Rory then messaged and said, well, the company that we've had involved is Allen and Company, which is a, um, I think most people would describe as a boutique investment bank based out of New York. And um, when I first heard that Allen and Company were coming in, I thought, excellent. This, this is real progress. Because if the tour is bringing in a third party to advise, then I'm very confident in, in how this process will now proceed. Um, but then I got the message that you know, Alan and company had said, you'll need 20 Ryder Cups a year to get to that valuation, which is simply not right. <laughs> I'm being polite. It's nonsense, utter nonsense. Um, particularly when you know, you know, what was paid in France, what, what's being paid in Italy, etc. Um, so that was an odd comment. When I, and when I responded to that, I said, well, that, that begs a number of questions. Yeah, A, you don't do a valuation without talking to the company you're valuing, surely. That's, that's pretty basic. Um, two, you know, what was the number? What, what set of, what of us, what, they haven't got our numbers, so what did they review? Um, and then next question, okay, if they're saying it's not worth 10 billion in 2030, fine. That's they perfectly entitled to their view, we've got ours. So what are they saying it's worth? Because if it's worth 10 billion in 2030, that's the you know, equivalent to $20 million per voting member of the tour. How far off are we? Are we 10% off? In which case it's worth 18. Are we 20% off? In which case it's worth 16 million. Now, what is the number? Because when you go through these assumptions and talk to the people who have done the work that lies behind those numbers, then you have your profitability or EBITDA number. I'm sorry to get technical, but this yeah, is where sure. you know, people get lost. Yep. You, you, have, you have your number. Then the only debate is what multiple you apply to that profitability, and that gives you your valuation. Now, and this is what I, I recently wrote again to Rory and basically said, you know, when, when we discussed the independent valuation, which we did before Christmas, I said I really saw that as one being done in accordance with industry standard, which is basically you guys come up with a list of valuers, third parties that are truly independent. Um, we'll do the same. We'll come up with three each. We then, you would typically then, between you agree one of those names from the list, you appoint them under a tripartite agreement. So we're all part of the same agreement. We split the fees and then we let them get to work. And the getting to work bit is, right, here's the data room. Here's all the information that we think you will require in order to be able to assess and verify, validate our numbers. But this is something then that the independent body does of its own accord. You know, they come to you, they go to the tour, they'll go to other parties and they'll say, you know, We've got a feel for these numbers, but we need to clarify X, Y, Z. That is the process, and it would typically take no more than three months. And at the end of that, they've spoken to the broadcasters, they've spoken to the sponsors. They come up with their own range. And that's the range I think you're talking about, which is down to the multiple. I've, I've no doubt whatsoever that our revenue and cost figures are entirely robust and would welcome any amount to challenge those. The only bit that is subjective is, well, what is the market going to put on this as a multiple of, that, of those figures in order to give your evaluation? 
And that's where there can be some debate. But as, as I also pointed out, you know, we can adjust the equity allocation. Now, if that third party comes back and says, actually, we're not good with 10, but we are good with 8 billion. And if 20 million per member is the magic number, then we, then we adjust. So it's all doable. That's the process that, uh, that I'm hoping we're about to embark upon. But um, we'll see. The, um, the, the idea that, that all these members would be in a position uh, to realize $20 million is, is great for the balance of the membership. But, but back to a point you made earlier, whether it be the player impact program, whether it be uh, the, the Comcast rewards program, uh, whether it be the, the players who, who get all the way to a tour championship and all this bonus money uh, that, is, that is earmarked for the stars in the game, I, I think we're getting to, to the most important thing. And again, money's important. It drives <laughs> virtually everything. But, but you want to see the best players. That is, that is the rub here. The whole idea of what you guys, it's like when I turn on golf, I want to know that I'm getting the best players. So this team concept, which would be 12 teams of four, um, there was an article that the New York Post, that they, they released, and then there was subsequently a player meeting that this topic was raised about the idea of, of constructing a team component to what might be the, a, the part of the fall series of events. Give us yeah. th th some clarity as to, from a visual standpoint, what do you got, wh where does this align itself with the larger picture of a PGA Tour schedule? Okay, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was aware that there was consideration of the fall series and the team events, probably going back two, two and a half years. Um, that started to, I'd say, circulate as a discussion point, probably around the same sort of time as the PIP. So, you know, and, and then 18 months later, it starts to filter into, you know, publication. Um, this is... PGL Premier Golf League is 18 events. And it's designed to be within a calendar year. So it begins in January and it ends at the end of August. And that hasn't changed. You know, the, the four months off the closed season. I've got to say, I was, I was surprised by how appealing that was to the players that we were talking to. Probably much more so than I anticipated when first writing the original documentation. Um, and I didn't write it as much for those guys to have a break. It was a recognition of the fact that they rarely played during that September through to end of January period. Um, so it was recognizing that, but also, you know, as fans, and I've, I've on, I'm on the record of saying this, I think it's hugely important for us to be able to miss something that we love, because if we're fed it on a constant basis, you know, I have it in other sports that I'm passionate about, football over here, soccer, for you guys but you know it, i get to the end of the season and think i'm not going to miss that and and i do you know three four months later i am absolutely reborn in my desire to to get back into you know following that sport and the same could and i think should be true of of golf um so when i looked at the the latest suggestions of the fall series i was thinking well you know, that is the time when the guys that you really want to play really don't want to play right? because it's the fall. And we all know that. Um, so it seemed to be a sort of hybrid mishmash of a recognition, perhaps, that there's, you know what, 
there's something in this Premier Golf League if you bring in the teams. But you've, if you do it on a, I think it was three that were proposed and none of them were in the US. Um, what you're missing out on is all the other great stuff. You know, the team owners, that, that, that special quality, that new dimension, that the existence of the teams and the teams being able to build up and be part of the story over a full season. You can't achieve that over a, a, a mini series of three at the back end of the year. You know, are there FedEx points? Are there not? That's that sort of stuff. So go back to answer your question as to where this fits in. It fits in, I think, very well with the existing schedule of the tour. But that's part of the conversation that we would get to once we've crossed this little bridge of the valuation. I think that, you know, getting the tour comfortable that we know what we're talking about and, and actually there is this value. As soon as we're over that, then you get into the, okay, well, how does the scheduling look, et cetera. And we, we've done our models of, you know, how you put in 30 PJ tour events. There's no clash. There's certainly no clash with us or any majors. Um, you can, you can fit that in. Then it's, you know, there's no more, no more golf than currently exists. Um, but it's the recognition that you know if you're moving, and this you know, goes back to the you know, Comcast top ten, etc., the pit. You've seen this move of money, and you know, what what the tour appears to have done is to say, right, we're going to shift probably about 150 million. Now, if you go back to the letter that Jay Monahan sent back end of November, saying we're in great shape. This is what we're doing to the purses. Detail was set out in there, and you know we couldn't. There was some of it that might have been double counting, but it looked like about 150 million bucks, and most of that was being shifted to the top 50 players on the tour, and actually most of that was being shifted to the top 10. Right. And there's nothing. You know that is a perfectly normal reaction to what we were doing because, as I've said before, we had. We started with just what is better to watch. And what was better to watch happened, of course, generate what some would say is the real market value of the guys who are participating. And when we went to the sponsors and the broadcasters, there was a general theme that, you know, we're really only interested in 10 guys because they're the guys that everybody tunes in to see. And you know, that has changed to a significant degree over the last three years because you know back then it was the big four that were sort of coming through as the big five if you remember um and now you've probably got you know the 10 the 12 the 15 who are all capable um and they you know they have their picks and troughs which is the beauty of golf and as a fan you know one of the things that i kept being asked at the start was okay well who what what if someone just has an unbeatable team I said, well, give me an unbeatable team in golf that can go 18 times over eight months and maintain that consistency. Now, you know, Scotty Scheffler, given what he's done in the last three months, might actually be capable of doing that. But there weren't many who could, and Tiger did it, of course, but really as an exception. So, you know, that is, you can fit this within the existing schedule, but that is the conversation that we would have. You'd say, right, this money is moving. Now, if you're doing that, if you're shifting 150 towards the, as close as you can to the top 10, that's great because it's a recognition of their value. Um, and if you're, if you're going to do that, 
why not do that at the same time as creating for fans the best that we can imagine golf can be on a screen and in, and in a live experience and generate the value which benefits all, the, all of those members. So you've got three parts. You've got the shift of value towards the top 50. Yep. But if you only do that bit and you don't do improve the format, you know, the product, and you don't allow the value that's being created to be shared, it's, it just seems to me as though you're really missing out on two of the three vital ingredients of what could be brilliant. Um, and that's, that's where we're, that is the communication that I'm talking about. You know, this is already happening, guys. If you're a member of the PGA Tour, you might not have read the letter, you might not be seeing this, but, you know, average purses, according to the letter, we're going to rise by around about 1.1, which is, I think, about 12, 13%, top of my head. Um, but, you know, Comcast went doubled. You know, the, the, it was, I think there were, there were certain other tournaments which were limited field that were, were going we're raising far at a far greater rate. So that's happening. And of course, where that money is going is dragging up your average purse anyway. But you, you're then saying to the guys, well, this is happening anyway. You may as well do this in a way that benefits you all. Um, and by the way, you're not going to lose out regardless because we know that that top 48, we're going to you know, win around about 60% of the purse anyway. And with the changes that are occurring to the allocation of prize funds, that percentage is likely to rise, which means that you, you know, the rest of you, there's 150 of you, you're playing actually for this amount of money. And that can be generated week by week because the alternates prove it. You know, if you took the, the 150 that was, has been shifted towards the, the top end and put that across 43 events, that's, I think, around an extra three, three and a half million dollars per event. So, yes, that money has, is, is flowing into the tour, which is, a sign of its strength, you know, how, how well it's proceeding. But it's, way, it's what you do with that, the allocation of those funds. And, you know, you then you've got to look at the ratings as well. And, you know, they're not, they're not as healthy as they should be. No, I mean, they're if you not. Look at they're, they're not, Andy. And if you get, if, again, the construct of, of this format is 48 players uh, with these 12 teams, if if sponsors, if television knows that they are getting 48, and, and for all intents and purposes, the 48 uh, you know biggest names or most relevant players in the game, 18 times, those sponsors, those network broadcast partners, whether it be NBC, CBS, Golf Channel, uh, ESPN Plus, which is the digital uh, rights owner, Golf TV, yeah. which has the digital rights outside of the United States. I would think that they would be inclined to say, well, God, if I, if I know that I'm going to get them 18 times, that I'm, that I'm in. And you said that you've had those conversations. Have you had the conversations with NBC, with CBS, with ESPN? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, the answer is in the, in the round, yes. I don't like to talk about specifics, sure. as in naming individuals, although I think when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, yeah. we had a mutual friend we discussed. Yep. Um, yes, I mean, that's where we began. It would be foolish to have put the time and the effort into this as we have without going to those who fundamentally support the professional sport financially. Um, so, yeah, we went to 
yeah, in the early days, all of the OEMs this is, is where we began the conversation because you go back to 2014, things were not looking good for those guys. Um, you know, Taylor made its numbers as it was still part of Adidas were, were pretty shocking. And that was, you know, it coincided with Tiger stepping away from the game mm-hmm. for a period of time, et cetera. And you know, golf was in, in the doldrums. Um, we went systematically through those who financially support the, the professional sport. And we went with a very simple questionnaire, which was really, are you happy with your return on investment as you see it currently from the sport? What is it that you're unhappy about? By the way, this is the format that we're proposing. And the, the, the response was uniform and categoric as in, yeah, that's as good as it gets. Um, there were was, there was some who said, right, we need this. Golf needs this. And that was a, a major broadcaster. Um, because, you know, there are, there are some tournaments that make money for a broadcaster. There are, there are enough that don't. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm entirely familiar with how previous deals were structured and uh, built a good relationship with a number of those who have been involved in the industry and are still involved in, in the broadcast side. Yes, it's, I mean, it is, we've never come across anybody who's ever tried to argue that the Premier Golf League wasn't actually as good as golf gets as an experience for fans. And if you've got that, then you know the money is going to be happy because you know the ratings are going to be as good as they can be and then for, therefore you know, the broadcasters will be able to recoup their outlay via, via their ad sales. That's, that's the simple equation. We know that's never been challenged, which is you know, to a very large extent why I was so happy to see the response to the letter. It wasn't actually, no, this isn't a very good idea. We don't like the format, blah, blah. none of that. It was, right, we're not sure we believe the valuation. That, to me, was brilliant. <laughs> because what's, what's the one thing that can be demonstrated and proven by ex- an expert third party? The valuation, within a range. So if that is where we currently appear to be, which is, is that valuation to be believed? Let's find out. It wasn't a case of, no, well, you know, that's just a stupid idea or why the hell would you do that? You know, the, the other thing to bear in mind is with, with the 12 teams, we have a 13th, which will be foundation owned. Um, now that will have fan picked 51 players a year. So in addition to the 48 that are contracted for the season, you're going to have another 51 PJ Tour players who get to come in and, and show how good they are against the rest of the field. And if they're as good as they hope to be, they're going to win four million bucks of a weekend. Now, that is that is an opportunity for 51. You've then got the season, which is 18 events over eight months. You're going to have injury. You know, best one in the world, not everybody's going to stay fit. So you're calling and up players. You're calling up players. And that is layers of intrigue. You know, as a fan, who do you want to see next week? And that could be that you've just watched someone play brilliantly at Augusta, who is not currently contracted and entitled to, to play in the Premier Golf League. 
but you've seen it. You know, we've all seen the bolt from the blue and all of a sudden a name comes into your psyche that what didn't exist unless you were following college for the last three years. You know, that's the sort of player that really breaks through. And you go, right, I think he deserves a shot. And therefore, you know, fans vote that that individual is playing in the Premier Golf League the following week because it's a live addition to the story. I mean, it might not be a young kid. It might be somebody who, you know, you, you were in love with as a, as a fan who you thought had disappeared for good and they're back. And that's, you know, that's a story that occasionally materializes. So you've got, it's not a case of you got 51 locked in and the rest of you know. It is a case of, well, 51 guys are going to get the opportunity over a season to play. And when substitutes are required, then, you know, who does the team owner call? You know, that, that level of intrigue on top, layered on top of, well, who, you know, who did they pick today? How did he play? Well, he played very badly, but you should have picked the other guy because that's going to damage your team score. That's going to damage where you are in the playoffs at the end of the season. You know, that, there is, there's more, but there's a greater focus. And you know, something I was taught years ago was there's an awful lot to be said for knowing who's going to be playing because you can then start to invest. They, be, they are that seasonal narrative. The stories build. And, you know, Formula One is something I often go back to. But there are probably better drivers out there than you currently see racing in Formula One. Just technically better drivers, perhaps. But they didn't find their way to the top. They didn't have the opportunity, they, the financing, whatever was required to get them there. But as a fan of Formula One, you're not thinking, well, hang on, there's a guy you know, driving a Porsche or a Formula Three that is better, therefore I'm missing out. You're, you're fixated with, you know, this is what Drive to Survive did. It brought out the personality. And that's, these are all the factors that, you know, we, as far as we're concerned, they're, they're worth considering. And I, as I say, there's, I've spoken to players recently, some that I've never spoken to before. And there's a, there's a universal acknowledgement, a recognition that actually this is really very good. Um, now, if this is really very good as a format and it really does have the prospect of generating a lot of value, then, you know, as, as Rory said before Christmas, talk to him, <laughs> talk to them. Um, don't don't go off and have a valuation done by Allen and Company and then come back and say, well, they, they just said, you know, you'd need 20 Ryder Cups. Non it's nonsense. Um, engage in the process and do it properly because to a degree, I don't know whether board members feel this, but if, if I were a board member of the tour, I'd be thinking, well, I've got a duty to these guys. And well, Rory they do. Said it to me, they all have a duty. Yeah, yeah Rory, Rory said it to me. He said, you know, there's probably nobody who makes more money out of the PJ Tour than me. And this might not actually be in my best financial interest, but I do have a duty to, I think he said it on no laying up. You know, I, that's when he was chairman of the pack, which of course advises the policy board. Now he sits on the policy board. You still got to think about, I can't remember, I didn't call them the little guys, but he, you know, he, it was that sort of, I've got to think about the entire membership because it's broad, but you know, everybody is equal in their, their ability to vote. You know, one thing that when we spoke on the phone a couple of weeks ago that I said to you was, look, I, I don't I, I don't want you 
to, to, to talk to me. And, and for anybody who interpret this as, as you trying to, to bully your way into some boardroom, it's, it's merely to educate people. Um, and it gets, to, it gets to this question uh, about you getting a conversation with Jay Monahan. Uh, I have my own, you know, kind of feelings about, you know, why he wouldn't. And one of the questions I asked you was, would, would this financial model in any way threaten the status of their 501c6? And you said, absolutely not. Uh, so no. that, that was one thing. Then the other thing I wondered was, you know, the, the threat of, well, gosh, you know, th this is going to be such a large part of what the PGA Tour is. You're not looking to replace anybody, are you? No. No. It's, this, if it's done properly, is done under the auspices, but also, you know, using the existing resource that exists. Now, PJ Tour does not run or even own a majority of its events. I think anybody who knows the sport knows that. There are third parties and multiple third parties who come in and provide the services, but there is nevertheless you know, a central function, a management and oversight role. And of course that's, that stretches into negotiation of, of the bigger contracts. You know, when, they, when the policy board went down you know, they, I think the members used to have a majority or at least parity on that board. And then I saw a comment that um, Patrick Cantlay is being brought back, or being put onto the board in January 23, which will give the membership parity, as in five player members and five independents. At the moment, I think it's nine and four. So the independents have the majority on that board. Now that was apparently because they they were going into a period of intense negotiation around broadcast. Um, but the, the working together, the collaboration can be as deep as the board is, is willing to make it. Now, on the one hand, it is a 501c6 and it has restriction over what it is permitted to do in a commercial sense. But if you look at the structure that sits below PJ Touring, there are multiple for-profit corporations. And so there's, there's, I'm not gonna sit here and try to explain to people um, the ins and outs of 501c6, but it is entirely feasible. And um, I've had players who have, on our behalf, approached Jay and said, really, what is the harm in a conversation? Um, really think you should have one. And there have been others who said, well, you know, how, how does this play out for individuals who are currently senior executives of the tour? You know, is this something that is bad news for them? And I said, no, because if it's done under collaboration, then the best people are appointed to operate Premier Golf League. Um, now, we have a very good team that has been doing the work that I referred to over the last 24 months. But... There is plenty of room because you know, this is an operation which, even though we are looking to outsource key operational aspects to those excellent third parties that currently provide those services to the tour, that is, that is the model we're looking to deploy, but everything is centralized. So as opposed to every tournament having its own P&L, you know, we we're a different model because we're a for-profit. And that, that gives you, as far as we're concerned, certain advantages. You, you pay tax, but you know, paying tax, as far as I'm concerned, 
is a good thing because that is part of your social responsibility as well. So, you know, there is nothing that I would fear as an executive of the tour in engaging in this conversation. Um, that said, makes me sound incredibly naive. Of course, a lot of people fear change. Sure. Just per se, you know, it's something, well, I'm actually very happy with the way things are. And if we open up that conversation, we're not entirely sure where it's going to end up. You know, it might be a case of, well, yeah, let's have the conversation because there's no harm. And then the members, and this is, as I say, ultimately, conversation we want to have now is to get that board comfortable with our valuation or whatever the, the third party valuation is, because that then enables us to move on, one would think, to a conversation about, right, how does this work on a collaborative basis? And, you know, once that conversation has begun, if the membership decide actually this is something that we think has merit and requires further consideration, then, you know, ultimately, members are told from time to time, this is your tour. You know, that's been, that's been a sort of right. an increasing theme, your tour. What does that mean? <laughs> it, it doesn't actually mean you own it because you don't have shares in PJ Touring. It's your tour because ultimately you can get, you get to determine its, its policies. You know, go back to when Jay was speaking before the players at the press conference and was talking about um, whether players will be banned. And he said, well, you know, the, it's just the rules of the tour. If the rules of the tour say X, Y, Z, then X, Y, Z is the case. But actually, those rules can be changed. If, if, if the policy board decided to change them, the constitution could be changed. If the, if the members, of the, if a sufficient number, majority of PJ tour members decided to change those rules, they would be changed. And so, you know, that everything is possible so long as the communication is effective. And this is where it becomes really, really quite difficult. And I've spoken to guys on the PJ tour who I haven't spoken to before in the last, and I've spoken to them in the last couple of weeks. And they said, well, the biggest problem is we don't talk to each other at all. You know, it's, an, it's a peripatetic lifestyle. It's solitary, it's ultra competitive. And, and they don't hang around just having, having a chat. They don't hang out together. They, they rock up, they, they, they do their thing, they compete, but very rarely do they come together to, to form a collective view or even to discuss things that might be important to them. Um, and that's something that I think you know, as part of all this would hopefully be addressed. That's, that's, without a shadow of a doubt, Premier Golf League launches in 24, there will be a players association. No question, because they will need one. <laughs> because in the same way as the NBA and the NFL and virtually every other major sport has those bodies that exist, golf doesn't. And you can say, well, golf doesn't have it because they're all independent contractors. Um, that's not the answer. You know, and if you're dealing with you know, the Premier Golf League and teams, you want to have a players association. I would say there's reasonable, reasonable grounds for saying there should be one now. Um, if only as a forum for, for genuine communication, because without that communication, you cannot start to understand what the collective will might be. Now, these guys are not talking to each other. That, that is a problem for us because, you know, if, unless Peter Malnati and 
um, Webb Simpson act as the conduit, as you know, co-chairman of the pack, and disseminate this information, then you know there are a handful of large agencies who will cover, say, thirty or forty of the guys. Um, but there's there's another seventy-five of them who are independent of those large agencies and and really just doing their own thing. So, you know, that has been probably as I look ahead, that is why communication and an in principle a sort of protocol of how we proceed with PJ Touring, with the policy board, with Kevin Kisner, with Rory McElroy, with Ed Hurley, et cetera. That has to be the most efficient way of doing this. And bear in mind, in five months time, there are 75 members of the PJ Tour who are not gonna be members of the PJ Tour anymore. Now, for anyone who's read the letter, we're not the ones in a hurry, but if I were somebody who was fearful of losing my card in September, I'd be saying to policy board, you know, can you get on with this conversation? Fine. If it comes back that an independent valuer says, they've just been talking nonsense, it's only worth X, then, then fine. But, but at least know that by the end of May. Because you can then say, right, end of conversation, thanks very much. Or they come back and say, actually, it's worth 13. Or they come back and say, it's worth nine. You know, whatever it is. But don't miss out on the opportunity just because everything happens so slowly. Um, and because there wasn't that communication between you know, those who ultimately get to make the choice. You know, Andy, there are, you, you mentioned several different uh, entities, and I, I, I'm talking about agencies, agents in particular, you know, who, who work independently, but then under them, they have a group of players. And, and obviously, there are some that have more uh, weight, leverage, the, the, the ear of Jay Monahan, whether it be Mark Steinberg, and it's not just Tiger Woods. I mean, XL represents a yeah. lot of the top players. Uh, yeah. and, and then, you know, subsequently from there, whether it's, it's David Winkle and, and the guys that they've got at Hamrick and now, and they've got Scotty Scheffler and they've got Dustin Johnson. I can go, I can go on and on and on. Where is your dialogue with these people who, who may not necessarily have players who are on the policy board? And, and to your point about conversations between these, this peer group that, you know, they show up, they play a golf tournament. How much are they really conversing about things that, that may affect them? Um, where is your where is your dialogue with these people who have the ear of Jay Monahan? So, I got to know those guys very well. Um, I spent quite a lot of time with Mark and with David and with uh, Steve Loy, etc. As you would expect, because that's where we were focused. They happen to represent some of the best players in the world. Um, there was always there were always two issues, not so much with Excel, but you know, when you have, when you were treating a handful of players differently from the rest, there was a conflict that existed for the agents, which is, okay, I represent this guy, but I also represent another five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten guys. So how do you balance those interests of the individuals you represent? But also how as an agency, because some of the big agencies, they operate events for the tour, they um, sell rights, sponsorship, etc., And so they've got other revenue streams that are dependent upon their relationship with the tour. And those were the issues that we were encountering. 
and it always made it slightly more awkward. So, you know, when I first got to know the guys, I was just, you know, the, I, they was, it was sort of meeting behind the bins. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was, yeah, don't want to be seen with Gardner. Um, and then it transitioned to, uh, I think the, the tour put together two or three years ago, a, a, a committee of the, of the most powerful agents. Well, you were, you're probably aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, yeah, the guys who were called up and said, I'm coming on, would you like to participate at, in this committee? Said, said to me within a short period of time, by the way, this is what's happening. And then those, those guys who were powerful in the game on the, you know, the player representation side started to say to Jay, well, you know, talk to Andy. And you know, I, thought, I thought it was going to happen several times over the last two or three years because I didn't think they would get a no. And I know that they didn't expect to get a no, but they did. They got a no. Um, now, I've kept them abreast of the change in policy, but the change in policy actually takes me beyond the focus of you know, the the 10, 12 guys that we were talking about originally. As I say, the constituency is now the entire membership and 210 is as important as number one, as far as I'm concerned, in getting getting this done. And so I've kept some of the guys up to speed, but I've not, it's not been a focus of our attention or mine. Um, what happens next? You know, if, if, we don't have a form of engagement or collaboration which allows us to proceed with the independent valuation, which as I say right now is to me the hurdle that we have to overcome in the short term. If there is still a stone wall, then who else has a fiduciary duty to ensure that those individuals who are most important to us, our prospective joint venture partners who are members of the tour, they have, there is another channel to them, which is other than direct, it's going through those agencies, um, which I, I suspect is what we would do if we didn't get the engagement that, quite frankly, on a, as I say, on a logical basis, you would expect. Um, not that logic has ever really come into this, but uh, on, a, you know, on a logical basis, I think it's going to be, I find it very hard to justify not engaging in the in the process we're describing. Andy, I, I just, on top of that, I mentioned Mark Steinberg and, and Tiger. Do you have any idea and any any sense of, of the awareness level that Tiger might have? Because as evidenced by what we just witnessed this week, and I didn't need any more evidence of, of it's not a curio- curiosity, it's an obsession with anything associated with him. And I just say this hypothetically, if Tiger Woods is a team owner, um, and, and the underwriting opportunities that would exist for all of these teams from a sponsorship standpoint, to me, and I'm just saying this in my perspective, would be ample, to say the least. Um, do you have any idea his level of, of understanding of what this is? No, I don't. Um, if I had, I, you know, I, I don't think it, even if I did, I wouldn't probably choose to sure. express my view. I think that's, you know, you know Mark, um, very capable of expressing his own view uh, as and when he deems it appropriate. Um, 
yeah, right now, this is about creating a structure which I see as the evolution of the PGA Tour. You know, it is, it's not a breakaway, it's not a reformation. It is merely the creation of another pillar under its existing structure. You've got six, this becomes a seventh. Quite possibly, you know, the view that someone like Mark or, or Tiger would take would I hope be based upon whether or not we've achieved collaboration. You know, if, if, if the conversation has begun, then there are a good number of individuals who would very much like to own a team on the Premier Golf League, who we've been talking to for the last seven or eight months. Um, very, very interesting individuals. You know, none quite possibly as interesting as, as having Tiger as a team, and it would be. Sure. Um, but those sorts of individuals could become part of the conversation we have with the tour in the next two, three months. Now, when it comes down to valuation, one of the things I fired back to the Allen and Company element was just out of interest, what have they attributed in terms of value to the equity that we're retaining in the teams? Because that means you're coming up with a valuation of, of the teams, uh, depending on the nature of the ownership, the owner, uh, that team could have a, a quite extraordinary value. Even if you discount the average values of other franchises that exist in other sports by quite a lot, you're still talking about a lot of value. Um, now, bringing those guys into the conversation would, I think, be quite enlightening for a lot of people, including the tour, because that is the other dimension that uh, we have considered in extraordinary detail, but it's probably not something that Anand and Co have been through. I was, I would suggest, because they haven't had the conversation with us, so they can have no idea of the conversations we've been having with those third parties. We would share that information. Um, that would be part of the process. But no, it's um, yeah, there will be, I'm sure, um, some interesting conversations to be had once the process has been started properly, and that's. That's where we're at the moment. The um, couple more things before I let you go. Um, one of the other things that I think clearly exists now in the game uh, on the men's side, and, and really women as well when it comes to the PGA of America, the USGA, the RNA, um, Augusta National, is there is a, there is a line of communication and a, a synergy that exists between these, these, and the PGA Tour, these five families, so to speak, uh, more so at a level than, than I can ever recall, uh, certainly in my lifetime, and I think ever. Um, have you tried, or, or, and, and simply to, to educate people, whether it be Seth Waugh, whether it be Martin Slumbers, whether it be Mike Wan, um, as to what it is this is to, to maybe be able to create some advocacy when it comes to bridging that conversation gap between you and Jay Monahan. That's a very, it's a very astute point, an observation. Um, so again, forgive me, I'm gonna probably steer clear of naming names and being specific on conversations, but yes, of course, that when we began this in earnest seven years ago, um, go probably a couple of years in, and we took everything that we had proposed to the majors. I think I'm on record as having said that. 
um, to explain what it is we were doing and what our motivation was and to see whether there was an objection. And there was no objection because as a matter of principle, why would there be? Um, and of course, the those bodies are all independent from PGA Tour and European Tour. Um, you talk about five families, which is something I've read, of course, very often from Jeff. Um, there's always been cooperation, but there is also, when you truly understand the politics that exists behind golf, you know where the tension lies and it's fascinating. And that's one of the things that first got me hooked. You know, it's, you know, uh, what's the real relationship between the PGA of America and the PGA Tour? Now that is worthy of another conversation, but it has also changed because as personnel change, relationships change. But I can tell you what, when I you know, first spoke to Pete Bavacqua, who was at the time chief exec of the PGA of America, it was different then from how it is now. And yes, I've had um, some very good conversations with some of, some of the individuals who are senior within those organizations. Um, and when we put out the website back in June of last year, we wrote to the PGA of America and LPGA tour and said, you know, this is what we're considering. And there is the ability to share this value within golf's community. Now, yeah, I got, we got an immediate response from Rory back in June. We got a, a swift response from the LPGA tour. The PGA of America did not come back to us. Um, so, you know, you move on, but they, in the same way as I talk about prospective team owners and the added value that those individuals would bring to this conversation. Yes, there's a reason why in that letter, seven and a half percent was set out to the foundation. Now, of course, according to our estimates, that's worth 750 million bucks in due course, which is value that would be generated for, you know, for example, some one or more of the existing majors to come in and say, well, this, yeah, we'll take responsibility for that, for its allocation. It's not something that the Premier Golf League as a corporation would have anything to do with other than creating the value that would then be dispersed as those appointed would, would see appropriate. As soon as we get over, if I say that, as soon as we get over what I see as this initial hurdle, valuation, bring in all of those parties. You know, the, I haven't had a conversation with Keith Pelly for a long time, but there's value in this for his members. Um, so there's got to be, a, one would have thought there should be a conversation there because what we set out in the letter was, as far as we were concerned, a very fair way of beginning the conversation based upon how this value is shared. It's not the only way, there are multiple different. Um, and yeah, there's a, you get to a point where there's, there's too many chefs in the kitchen and you know, nothing happens. And that's been said of many sports over the years and you know, quite possibly has been true of golf. But if you get the right people in the room, then as long as there is the acknowledgement of let's have the conversation, then why not bring in some of those that you've mentioned? Um, because this is ultimately, go back to that conversation. What is right for the fans? What is right for the game? And ultimately what is right for, in this case, members of the PGA Tour and others? 
because if it's right for the fans, as I say, those who are putting up the money to finance the sport are very happy because we're all watching. That means it's right for the game because you're going to get, I know participation has been strong on the back of COVID, but you want to maintain that level of participation for the next 20, 30 years. And then ultimately, uh, what is right for PGA Tour members is a question that only they can answer. But you can't, you can't answer the question, is this better or not, without talking to us. Is that the yeah, and, and is that the next step? I mean, is it is it going to get to the point, Andy, that 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 Jay, um, it's going to be a sense of obligation that he is going to have to um, be willing to to have this conversation with you because enough of his members are are well versed on this particular proposal. Yeah, I mean, ideally, I think we've moved past the stage where I I believe it's going to happen voluntarily. <laughs> <laughs> just just because i'm a great guy um the the yeah i mean i bumped into an agent i hadn't seen for a long time when i was coming away from the players when i was sat at jacksonville airport uh i hadn't seen him during the previous three days and they said to him have you seen the letter and he said yeah i've seen the letter i went okay good um he said did jay meet with you and i went no and he went he went can't believe it. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's probably going to take your guys to, to ask the question, why not, ultimately? Um, we're not quite there yet, but it, it, there is a conversation to be had. It's, if we focus on, as I say, the process of, the, of getting this done properly and we get past the valuation and there's something that provides comfort, then, yeah, I would expect... There'll be a lot of people who want to get involved in this chat. Um, maintaining the view that, you know, is this good for the game? Is it, is it good for the fans? And if, if you've got all those boxes ticked, and if you don't, by the way, in three, six months' time, fine. But don't, don't miss the opportunity. Don't, don't just turn your back on it because whatever reason you might be coming up with. And I don't, and I don't know this at all, other than um, you know, certainly around the players, uh, what had what had happened very previous to that uh, was obviously the comments that Phil had made that became public that were made last November, uh, and then that weekend at Riviera, and and the comments made by Dustin Johnson, the statement by Bryson DeChambeau, and then there was a sense that he'd beaten back a threat, uh, which. And let me make it very clear again, your, this, your goal is not to be a threat. Your goal is to, to fortify and embolden uh, the PGA Tour. And, and whether it's, it's you know, recalibrating and, and, and coming back again, uh, I, I know that you're going to be persistent. Uh, you guys have worked for years on this. Um, I'm looking forward to continuing this dialogue. I really am. Uh, and, and when you're back in the States, which is in a couple of weeks, I hope to see you. When you're, uh, if, if you're back. Yeah. That would be superb. Yeah, Gary, I'm I've, I've hugely grateful for the time and the opportunity to, to have this conversation, but um, really look forward to it in the flesh as well. Andy, thank you very much. Pleasure. Really appreciate Andy taking the time. There was a ton of detail in that. And if you read the letter that was sent 
as Roy McIlroy being the conduit to the PGA uh, Tours board. There's a ton of information there and a ton of financial information. And for most people, they don't really care about that. They're thinking, you know, what does this mean for the PGA Tour? Well, to boil it down, it would mean that you would have 12 four-man teams that would compete over 18 events over the course of the year. They would still compete as individuals, but you would be offering up potential team ownership to some of the biggest stars in the professional game. It'd be a totally different look for the PGA Tour. I do think the conversation is going to happen between Jay Monahan and that group. Just remains to be seen when and how much are they willing to listen to this idea, particularly if the PGA Tour's membership says this is a good idea. But most importantly, I thank all of you for listening and watching to this Five Clubs conversation. We'll see you next time.